It's our privilege to be with you today. I believe God's going to bless us. Amen? Amen. We're praying for that. I enjoyed Brother Tennis preaching to us. I always do. Our superintendent has a wonderful gift, well, of the Holy Ghost, but other than that, to handle the Word of God. We appreciate so much that ability and that talent. Can you hear me yet? No, it's lost somewhere in the shuffle. In the original, Jesus actually gave Peter a nickname. I preached on it one time, called it the nickname of an apostle. Instead of, O ye of little faith, it is what is called in the Greek evocative, which is a direct address, and it's capitalized because it is a proper name. Oleogopiste. Called him little faith. He nicknamed Peter little faith. Said little faith. Why did you doubt? Amen. Sometimes he he gives us nicknames. You know what I mean? Depending on what particular situation we're in, he calls us old little faith. Well, we're we're going to uh, try to get along. Of course be impossible for us to cover all the material that uh, is involved in the study. I'll just be able to touch the highlights. <clears throat> I uh, did in uh, college not long ago, I taught a class, and it was kind of a, a crash course type thing on eschatology or prophecy, whichever you want to call it. And it was, uh, I taught two sessions, both of them three hours apiece each day. That was six hours a day that I taught. And I did that for five days. So I just want to show you. And then I didn't even get to the, uh, to all the material, the answer of the critics and what have you that you're able to do. It's just a lot of material that's connected with it. And I concur with Brother Cox, nobody has the last answer, and we haven't come today feeling like we know everything there is to know. Your idea may be as good as mine, because a lot of it hasn't happened yet. And uh, I will, I will uh, argue with you a little bit about the oneness of Godhead, but I won't argue with you about prophecy. Did you hear that? Amen? That's right. For I believe the Lord will save you whether you believe now or pre or post or mid or whatever. I believe the Lord will save you if you got the Holy Ghost and living right. But these things do interest us, do they not? And uh, it is demand that is put it upon us as ministers to uh, try to answer some of these things. And maybe we can be of help, at least confuse you greater, <laughs> whichever one that you want. Uh, let's see, it was in November, was it? We were in Jamaica. They filled the National Arena in Kingston. Over 8,000 people gathered for this Suntelia conference. And uh, the Lord blessed us in a wonderful way. So it has been an evangelistic tool. I think in uh, something like four nights, 120 or 30 were filled with the Holy Ghost. So it uh, can be a wonderful tool of evangelism in your church as well, the matter of prophecy. Prophecy is from the uh, word prophemi, to speak for. 
So we actually are speaking far and forth. Pro can be far or forth. So we have the connotation of those particular words. Uh, I will just, uh, as I said, uh, skim over it briefly. And I won't be able to go into the answer of the critics. And by critics, I don't mean people who disagree with me. I mean answer the critics, that is, to the higher criticism of the Word of God. Uh, supposedly scholarly, scholarly uh, uh, examination of, of the Scripture. That uh, word, critics, has been torn apart many times by its own rights. But uh, we'll just give you an overview of it. We have our prophecy conference in Lake Charles the last week of February, and uh, in that one I do take my time and I do go into a lot of things that uh, uh, are a little too long for us to handle here. But we, uh, we want to get into it to uh, today, and pardon me if I say tonight because it's dark in here. <clears throat> but uh, uh, today I will be on uh, a sort of a foundation. And I ask that you let me build a foundation for what I'm going to do. The problem so many times with our looking and preachers who talk with me and express their needs and their desires is a matter of organization. People think about prophecy. They want to jump right in the middle of the rapture and find out where I'm going to be or what I'll be saying or how high I'll jump or whatever. And uh, you have to start with a foundation and then build to that. So... I, I want you to allow me to do that today. Some things that we say will be a matter of history, and yet it is necessary that we uh, talk about them. I trust that you'll be able to see the uh, screen. I have a large screen that I use at home, which is about uh, 12 by 12 probably. covers the uh, front area of our church, and uh, we are doing a little different with this smaller screen. I hope that you'll be able to see in detail some of the things that we put up. All right, are you ready to go? I've got to move along today. I have uh, termed this uh, study that we are to be in, Suntelii. Everybody say Suntelii. See, you're talking Greek. Uh, it was the word used by Jesus or by the disciples in Matthew 24 when they asked Jesus about the end of the world. It is not telos and cosmos, it is suntelii, which is a compound word uh, of sum and telos. Sum is to bring together. Telei is a form of telos, which is the end. To bring together the end. So you were talking Greek when you said suntelii. It uh, is, uh, as I said, a compound word, and it is translated mostly as the end of the age are bringing together the end of the age. Now, I had this chart drawn from me by one of our preachers, and it involves many of the aspects of prophecy which we will be studying uh, this week. Uh, of course, the 666 in front, the uh, uh, Daniel's image uh, uh, by the metal man, uh, you see the four horses of the apocalypse, you see the mushrooming cloud, which would be a nuclear war, the sun in the background, and the moon, of course, uh, and the cataclysmic changes as that will uh, affect them. 
So by Centelliae and by this one drawing, I have tried to depict uh, the whole scenario of prophecy. And we hope that it will be plain to you. We hope that we can uh, help you along some of these things. We don't want to hinder you whatever we do. We don't want to hinder you, and we have no unkindness at all. I have never had anybody to be unkind to me in teaching prophecy. I have had had some who disagreed somewhat, and that's quite all, all right with me. I'm happy to hear your your viewpoint. I uh, I tell you, the worst thing you wrestle against, however, is ignorance, not not knowledge. And uh, it's not saying that we are ignorant. It's just a matter that some people uh, know they don't know, and some people don't know that they don't know. But we enter we enter a uh, phase of of study and. When it comes to the matter of prophecy, we're looking to God, and we have to say it is by the Lord's revelation to us, as He helps us. And as Brother Cox has said, nobody claims to have the last word. All right, we're going to, it is actually a comparison of Daniel and Revelation. Daniel is the most criticized book of the Bible by the higher critics, and I explained what I mean by that. Inasmuch as Daniel is minute in, in detailing the events that are happen. Now, in a little bit, I'm going to do something that you've never seen done, uh, and that is no boast. It's just a matter uh, of admission by most folks that uh, I'm going to read the Scripture and at the same time quote to you history. And uh, it is uh, an amazing thing how right the Lord was. I believe He's right, don't you? Thank God. And as we build this thing, he gets down into the naming of people, almost naming their names. And uh, the higher critic says Daniel could not have been written until uh, somewhere around 150 or even after Christ because Daniel was so detailed in his naming of events and people that did come to pass that he would have had to have been born or uh, after or it had to be written after at least 175 B.C. for Daniel to be able to write it. Well, there's a lot of different ways we can answer that. The truth is it can be proven that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel at least 500 years before uh, its fulfillment, many of the things of its fulfillment, and it is an amazing thing. There are other criticisms such as there are five Greek words in the book of Daniel and so on. We won't take time for that. But uh, the book of Daniel is divided by, it is divided by language. The first part is written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Gentiles. Of course, they were captives of the Gentiles in Babylon at that time. And strangely enough, that is called dreams. Uh, the first part divided at the seventh chapter. The latter part of the book of Daniel is written in the language of the Jew, the Hebrew. And it is called visions. And uh, it is, of course, m more directly telling the Jew how they shall react under the effects of world government in the times of the Gentiles. Let's move along, if I may. God reveals the future. Uh, Isaiah, it was, that challenged them and said, You bring forth your gods. This is to the heathen gods. He said, Let them speak of the things that have been, that we may know what shall be. Let them tell of the things that shall be that we know ye are gods. 
This is the test of anybody who must essentially be called deity, is whether or not they can speak of things that are to come, and for them to come uh, to pass exactly as he prophesied it. Uh, I, could, uh, I could take figures today and show you the tremendous odds against Daniel's prophecies ever coming to pass. I won't take time for that. They are something like 1 in 10 to the power of 59, uh, which is an unthinkable number. But God was able to bring these things to pass. We are going to look at the visions of Daniel. We're going to begin in Daniel 2, where Daniel uh, is describing the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, and uh, I shall read to you from the Daniel 2 and 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part iron and part clay. Thou sawest, or the original says, thou continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands which smote the image upon his feet and uh, that they were of iron and clay and break them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the breast, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away and no place was found for them and the stone that was uh, smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now today we're going to talk about the winds of God taken from this scripture here. It will be the succession of nations reaching from the year 606 B.C. until the time of the Antichrist, which is yet future, and has been dubbed by Jesus Christ the times of the Gentiles, a word different from the word fullness of the Gentiles in a reference to the church uh, in uh, Romans 11. But tomorrow will be on my one of my sugar sticks. I like to deal with it. It is called... Uh, it will be the matter of time, the ages. We'll count time and we'll call it God's use of time. Calculations of how God uses time to His purpose and to His Word. And then on the third day we will be involved with uh, our appointment, which will be the rapture and halfway into the book of Revelation. The last day, I think I've got that many days. Uh, will be on, uh, on uh, the beast and his battles, telling you which nations will be aligned with what nations and describing the Antichrist and so forth, and if we have time to get into the millennial just a little bit. But uh, we'll be able to touch on the highlights just a little bit as we go along. All right, Nebuchadnezzar is seeing the Daniel, uh, or Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar of the vision that he saw. And he said, you saw a great image. I believe that he tried to reduplicate that image in the third chapter of Daniel in the plain of Dura. It was 99 feet tall. But uh, he said, you saw this image and it was uh, of a head of gold, arms and breastplate of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet part iron and clay, to the ten toes, which of course uh, are the final form of world government of the, uh, of the world. Then... <clears throat> Uh, notice the mineral becomes less as you go down. You start with gold and you have a lesser mineral of silver. Then you have a lesser mineral brass, then a lesser mineral. It, uh, the, the material becomes harder, more brittle, and more difficult as you go down, but uh, it actually loses its value. 
And uh, we are not left to our imagination as what this represents. I don't have time to deal with you on the subject of a parabolic interpretation. But uh, Daniel actually interprets it later and tells Nebuchadnezzar, You are the head of gold. Tells him which kingdom he represents. Daniel 2 is the identification of the nations from the year 606 B.C. until the destruction of the Antichrist in the day that's to come. Then he said, There was a rock that was hewn out of the mountain without men's hands, and that rock hit that image in the feet and break it and uh, into pieces. And though you describe the image from the top to the bottom, when it starts to be destroyed, it. Uh, I'd like for you to stand with me if you don't mind. Did I give you a chance for that a while ago? I want you to stand. I intended to give you a moment to rest. I sat there a while ago, and I know that you need to stand. So you uh, turn around and uh, shake hands with somebody and say, Thank God for that rock. All right. Thank God. Kind of, kind of stretch your arms out a little bit if you don't mind. Rest up just while you're sitting there. I'm sorry I forgot to do that. Amen. You may be seated right there after you stretch for a moment. That rock breaks the image in pieces, grinds it to powder, and it is blown away like the chaff from the summer threshing floor. I've called this the winds of God. Actually, Daniel sees the nations of the world ground to powder and blown away with the wind like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. Now, that's, that's hard for you and I to conceive. Uh, in order, we can't see history pass that fast. We've got to see wars and images and kings and powers and politics and deaths and all of that. But God could speak and see that thing, all of the nations of the world from that time forward, just blown away like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And uh, this one rock became a mountain, and the mountain grew until it filled the whole earth. And, of course, sitting on top of that, I believe, uh, we describe the city of God, which will come down in the book of Revelation. The kingdoms are broken to pieces before our very eyes. Now, there are some people that say, ho-hum, the vision of Daniel. The reason they do is they don't know what any one of them represents. You have to be involved here because we are living in a part of this particular vision. It covers all of the time. Now, the visions of Daniel, and I want you to remember this and write this down on your cuff, the visions of Daniel are all about the same thing. Everybody say they are the same thing. They show a different aspect of the, in, uh, of the same situation. And uh, Daniel 2 identifies the nations, and here they are finally ground to powder by that great rock. Then, of course, we go to Daniel 7 and remember that all of the visions of Daniel. I don't have time to go into everything that is in those visions. I just give you a quick uh, synopsis of what is in there, and you can read it and study it at your own leisure. In Daniel 7, he saw uh, da uh, another vision, and this one is, uh, of course, Daniel. And this is of a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrible beast or indescribable beast. And they come up out of the sea. You are dealing with the nations that shall evolve through time. Now, they are all about the same thing. You heard me say that. If Daniel 2 is an identification of the nations from the year 606b until the demise of the Antichrist, then Daniel 7 is the nature 
of those kingdoms. It shows you the nature of those kingdoms. There is no action involved in any of this. They simply come out, out of the sea and are identified. And the head of gold in Daniel 2 find its counterpart with the lion that comes up out of the sea, which is the king of the beast. And as gold is the more precious material, so is the lion, the king of the beast. And yet uh, that age of uh, Babylon finally ended. Babylon is, of course, the head of gold. And uh, Medo and Persia uh, is the next, is arms and breastplate of silver. Always remember this about this particular kingdom age, that there were two arms, two divisions, always two elements involved in Medo and Persia, and generally one is elevated above the other, the Persian becoming the more major empire of them all. But uh, if the head of gold is uh, Fanny's counterpart and the lion in Daniel 7, then the arms and breastplate, what does it find its counterpart in Daniel 7? It is the bear, which is a slower uh, animal but is and is cumbersome but is powerful. Now he finds him rising up on one side so that he is higher on one side than he is the other. And that once again shows you the prowess of the Persians above the Medes. And there are three ribs in his mouth representing three Persian kings, Cyrus Cambyses and Darius Hespasis. And the fourth Xerxes shall be far richer than them all. So this, and I'm just skipping this, is the the Persian Empire showing the natures of the kingdom in Daniel 7. The identification of the brass was the Grecian Empire 332, and this, of course, was Alexander the Great. Lesser material, but it was still strong and still more valuable than the one that followed it in some respects. It finds its counterpart in Daniel 7 with... Uh, the leopard, which had four heads, which are the generals of Alexander's army. And what I'm telling you today is generally accepted scholarship. There is no difference at all, perhaps only with the seven-day advantage uh, who try to make these animals part of the uh, world that we're in today. They don't accept any type of this as being history, but otherwise it is accepted scholarship. The wings, of course, show the swiftness of the uh, empire of Alexander the Great. Uh, these four heads represent the four generals that uh, cover that particular empire. And we'll cover that more in just a moment. The legs of Daniel 2, which are iron, there are two of them, of course, identifies Rome. Two divisions to the papacy, uh, the uh, Roman, pardon me, two divisions to Rome, the papacy, and the Greek Orthodox. So you have two divisions uh, in the Romish uh, empire. But you notice when you get down to the end of the world, when you get down to the end of the venue, you don't talk about five toes and five toes. You talk about ten toes. You put them together. Though you have two legs of iron representing the eastern and the western as far as Rome is concerned, when you get down to the final ten toes, which I believe is the final form of the world government that I think is already formed, you don't talk about five and five. You talk about ten. The Pope that you have now in Rome, one of the first things that he did after he became Pope was to go to the Greek Orthodox and uh, seek with them to find common grounds that they could join the Greek Orthodox back with Rome again so that you would have the ten toes and not two, just two divisions of it, all right? So the nature of, uh, of the two legs in Daniel 2 finds its counterpart in Daniel 7 with the beast who had teeth of iron. 
And uh, once again, the nature of the that Romish empire is an indescribable beast. You have the word a terrible beast, but it is actually uh, an indescribable beast because of its horror. It comes up out of the sea, and with those iron teeth, uh, of course, giving the connotation of its connection with Daniel 2, legs of iron, it breaks in pieces everything that has been left from the other kingdoms and disperses the Jew and removes their power. From him comes those ten horns which are the feet of the Daniel 2. And that is the final form of world government. The ten horns come out of Rome. And here are the feet part iron and part clay. You still have Rome, which is iron, but its power has been diminished somewhat by the uh, democracies of the world. But these elements do, like, do not like to mix. This is where you are today. You still have Rome with power over much of the world, but still somewhat minimized because of the clay and the democracies of the world that divides that power. The final form of world government, I believe, is already set up uh, in one particular form. It may take on another one before long, but you have the ten toes, which are the final form of world government. Then that rock, which fills the earth and, and uh, is a mountain and fills the whole earth and becomes the kingdom of God, uh, and that is without man's hand, hits these ten toes and hits the feet. And uh, I believe that we're living in this latter part right here today. Amen? I believe that we're right there today. Here is that rock hitting those feet, and there inside that rock, you see the glorious return of the Lord at the end of the world with all of the holy ones with Him. Say, praise the Lord. Amen. There are the feet standing upon the world, and there is the rock coming down, hitting that, and finally grinding it to powder. Now we're going to Daniel 8, which is another vision of animals, but the only thing is, in this one, you have action. Now, where you had four elements before, you do not have four elements. You do not begin with Babylon, which was the head of gold, or with the lion, but you begin with the ram that has two horns, with, and that, of course, is the Medo and Persia. Ancient coins are found uh, and uh, of Medo and Persia era, and they have the head of this ram upon them, uh, of course, tying them with the Medo and Persia empire. One horn is greater than the other. There you have again the Persian example of its prowess above the Medo power. And this uh, why somebody said, don't we have, if, we ha if it's all about the same thing, why don't we have something for Babylon? Because by this time, about the time of this vision, uh, everybody was familiar. Now, if, if Daniel 2 is the identification of the nations, Daniel 7 is the natures of the kingdom, Daniel 8, what, it is, what is it? It is the military prowess of these particular kingdoms. It, it, there is action involved in there, and it describes their power in the 8th chapter, how that this ram pushes every direction until it gains uh, its power. Then there is a he-goat, 
with a notable horn. What uh, That is the military prowess of the Grecian Empire. Now, we've already discussed them. We have identified them. We have shown you their natures in Daniel 7. Now we describe their military prowess, and the ram had two horns that it pushed in every direction. Now, the he-goat comes against the ram. Now, he has one notable horn, and that, of course, was Alexander the Great. And here Daniel sees that one uh, horn with that, uh, pardon me, that goat with that one horn. I'll be able to talk better after a while. I've got my tongue over my tooth and can't see a wink right now. But it comes against the ram, which is the Medo and Persia, and, and fights against him and, and actually pushes the Medo and Persia off of the map. And then that notable horn, Alexander the Great, is broken off, and he, of course, died at the age of 32. Four horns come up in its place, which are the four, uh, four generals of Alexander's kingdom. Now, this is too much to be coincidence. This is just simply the history of that particular time. It is too much to be coincidence. That is the reason the higher critics, quote-unquote, uh, say that Daniel has to be written much later uh, than, than the given date of 535 B.C. They say it's got to be written much later than that. But I tell you the truth. I, am, I believe in God to the extreme that He can see the end from the beginning. Amen? I believe he's exactly right on track today. I believe he knows what he's doing, and we are progressing right along the line. Our problem is just to find out where God has us and uh, to try to operate within sphere of our own understanding. These four horns are the four generals of Alexander the Great. And uh, these four generals, generals were Ptolemy, Lysimachus, Seleucus Nicotar, and Cassander. These were the four generals that divided his, his kingdom into Egypt, Syria, Thrace, and Macedonia. And then out of one of these kingdoms comes a little horn. Now, people are always finding the Antichrist everywhere in the book of Daniel. They read about him here, and he is one way, and they read about him there, and it's another way. Let me give you the truth about the little horn. There are two little horns in the book of Daniel, one in the 7th chapter and one in the 8th chapter. The one in Daniel 7 comes from the 4th kingdom. He is an outgrowth of the 4th kingdom. Uh, uh, and it uh, is an outgrowth of the ten horns of the end time. He is the last day beast, and we are going to describe and tell you some things by reason of being able to look at the original and try to help make it a little clearer to you. It says he has exceptional eyes and mouth. We'll describe him every day a little more, all right? We're going to talk about the Antichrist or the beast just a little bit every day and give you a little more of the description of that Antichrist as we go along. In Daniel, uh, Daniel 7, it talks about his look is more stout than his fellows. You remember reading that? The original is actually this, the, his uh, organ of the eye. The look means the organ of the eye is more larger and luminous than his fellows. I don't know exactly how he is going to look. 
But this scripture describes him as having a mouth like a man, which may be the only thing, by the matter in the law of exception, the only thing that he has like a man, the mouth of a man. But his eyes are larger and more luminous than his fellows. So you can believe that by this scripture that the Antichrist will have exceptional eyes and mouth. And by getting in the book of Revelation and show his action with 144,000, uh, I will show you when we get there that he has a power above other men to do what men cannot do. They try it and they're killed for it. The beast is the only one who is able to do that kind of action. Now the other horn in the book of Daniel is from Daniel 8. This one does not come from the third or from the fourth kingdom which is the indescribable beast or Rome but the one we just got looking at the fourth horn it comes from the third kingdom which is the Grecian Empire and is an outgrowth of the division of Alexander's kingdom and of course that little horn there is none other as we will see in just a little bit a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifested. He lived in 175 B.C., and he is a prototype of the Antichrist that shall come. Now, I want you to stay with me. This is a bit of learning that's going on. We'll finally get on to the shouting ground as we go along. But like I told you, we're going to have to build a foundation, and that's what I'm doing today. Everybody say, help yourself, Brother Treese. Amen. We are building a foundation today. Now this, I just, I, I get epistles all the time. I, letters and long articles that people want me to check and so forth. Uh, people that are writing some of our material, some of them have gone off on the shallow end, if you'll let me say it that way. Instead of the deep end, my wife says they've gone off on the shallow end. And they sent me uh, quite a document on... Uh, on the, uh, the better resurrection, I don't have time to cover that here, but it's a new doctrine that's coming out. You'll hear it before long called the better resurrection. And uh, uh, they write, and they just jumble together the horns and all of the characters of the book of Daniel. You can tell by reading it, they have no understanding of the divisions of the book of Daniel or the uh, evidences that have been given matter of history. The difference in the horns is that one of them in seven comes from the fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom, while in Daniel 8 it comes from the third kingdom or from the Grecian empire, from one of those horns, actually Syria, and this is where uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was from. And uh, he comes from the uh, comes from four horns, not ten horns like the other one did. But he does this. He takes away the sacrifice. The sanctuary is defiled by him and then is cleansed. And he is Antiochus Epiphanes of 175 B.C. Now, I've given you the truth about the little horns. Perhaps when you pick up the book of Daniel and read it, uh, you'll be able to determine which one of these that it's talking about, uh, whether it is the little horn from Daniel 7 or the little horn from Daniel 8. Both of them are not the Antichrist. One is a prototype of the Antichrist, and his name is Antiochus Epiphanes, or God manifested. Now, here is somewhat uh, an overall view of what we've just talked about. There's the old prophet writing. And up in the front, he sees Babylon marching. 
then following on the hills of Babylon is Medo and Persia, and uh, then on the heels of that is the Grecian Empire, and then following that, of course, is uh, our day right out in the last. And uh, I believe that is the thing that's looming finally is the kingdom of God in the end time. Time marches on. Let me give it to you another way. Here's the comparison of the book of Daniel. Let me review with you just a moment. You may want to copy this down uh, if you are interested in to that degree. Daniel 2 is the image, the vision of the image, and it is the identification of the nations. Daniel 7 is the lion, the bear, the leopard, the terrible beast, and shows you what? The natures of those kingdoms. Daniel 8 is the ram, the he-goat, and the little horn. And it tells you the what? Military prowess of each of those kingdoms. Now, we are fixing to go to Daniel 11, which is still about the same thing. Tomorrow we will be chiefly in the book of, or the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel for a, a great deal of the time. However, like I told you every day, we will finally get out to describing the Antichrist before it is all over with. But the eleventh chapter we have called historical characters or hysterical characters, whichever one you want to call them, and the details of conquest. Now, uh, this is really, this is where I want us to get the, uh, uh, the matter of, uh, of reading the Scripture and telling you the history of the same time. Most of the eleventh chapter of the book of Daniel is the uh, is intertestament period or what is known as the uh, Maccabean period much of it however it does reach finally into our day and finally to the end of the world but uh, let's start back and review for just a moment if you will and we can begin reading I'm going to read to you from the second verse behold now I will show you the three kings behold shall stand up three kings in Persia and those three kings that are mentioned here standing up in Persia are Cyrus, Cambyses, and Darius Hesperides. All right. And he says, now there shall be a fourth which is far richer than them all. That fourth one was by the name of Xerxes. Then a mighty king shall stand up who shall rule according to his will. Now let me tell you something about the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel. You pick it up. And you find the king of the north, the king of the south. You find all of this battling going on and you find what we think is the Antichrist 15 dozen different times and it all gets to be a big confusion. Well, it really isn't with the history that I'm giving you and you can buy almost any any book that you want to and they will give you the history that this verse affords. But what I'm fixing to do is read you the Bible and quote you the history. And if you've had any type of detail... Uh, uh, ancient history in college, you are familiar with the individuals and with the events that I'm about to name to you that happened. Daniel is going down the line. He doesn't start in the 11th chapter back with Babylon, but he starts with Persia. The 8th chapter started with Greece, but in the 11th chapter, we're going to start with Persia, with three kings, he says, that are in Persia. You can't translate that as anything else. It's not left up to you. I had a professor in college who said, always translate as literal as possible and literal when possible, and I believe that with all of my heart. If it's just left up to your dream and your fancy, I've got to have you around every time I go to interpret to tell me what your dream and your idea and your parabolic view 
view of this particular verse happens to be. But if it says there were three kings in Persia, I want to look for three kings in Persia. Amen? And they were there, and I have named them to you. Now there is a fourth one by the name of Xerxes, and after Xerxes was the one by the name of Alexander the Great. Uh, I'd like to take this, if I could, and walk around just a little bit. I'm like Brother Tinney. I have to move around sometime when I preach. I'll get out here where I can see it just a little better. I won't walk too far, I don't think. Amen. I can't go too far a little bit. All right. But uh, Alexander the Great died at the age of 32. It is said that when he conquered, going all the way to the Ganges River, conquering all that direction, that he got there and he sat down because he had conquered so much of the world and wept because there was no more to conquer. Actually, that wasn't true. India was still before him. But uh, he, uh, he came back and died somewhere uh, right close into the area of ancient Mesopotamia. But Alexander the Great was powerful and swift. You find him in the other chapters that I just mentioned. Let me tell you just a little bit about him, if I can, to show you something about the book of Daniel. Now, uh, it is said of Alexander the Great that he came to a great philosopher, Hippocrates, and Hippocrates sitting in a cave when Alexander the Great came to him, and he called out to the Greek philosopher in the cave and said, I am Alexander the Great, conqueror of the world. There was no answer. So he called out again and said, I am Alexander the Great, conqueror of the world. There was a voice that came from inside and said, You are standing in my light. So he just moved out of the way. Finally the voice came back and said, Go conquer your tongue. Then come and tell me what you have conquered. And as Alexander the Great started to walk off, the philosopher said, And by the way, never take away light that you did not give. I thought that was pretty good. I am not, I'm not a great one to quote the philosophers, but I thought that was pretty good. If light is given by someone, God especially, who are we to diminish that light and take away from it? Amen? All right. But Alexander the Great, listen to this. Uh, from the mean library, I got this information by able to read the ancient uh, language. I was able to read this about him. I don't preach it for Bible, but I do believe that it happened. Pardon me if I believe it. You, we also, we are inundated with secular history, which we believe, and we go along with it. And this is absolutely right along with the Scripture. But I don't preach it for Bible. I just tell you what actually happened uh, as far as history affords them. When Alexander the Great was conquering... And he came toward Jerusalem. The priest of the Jews came out to Alexander the Great, and they had a book with them. And they came and presented him with that book. And he opened that book, and he read where a Grecian emperor and conqueror would conquer. And you know what book they brought him? They brought him the book of Daniel. This is proof by secular history. 
and by historians that the book of Daniel was written before the time of Christ, at least 535 B.C. Why? Because it is written by the Maccabeans and by Herodotus uh, that they presented him the book of Daniel and Alexander the Great, when he found himself in prophecy, got down and began to worship. And his four generals asked him, Why are you worshiping these men? He says, I am not worshiping these men, but I am worshiping their God who predicted my conquering this land years ago. If Alexander the Great can find himself in prophecy, I think the church of the living God ought to be able to find ourselves in prophecy. Praise God. But a wonderful aspect of this thing is, it dates, it proves the date of the book of Daniel. Alright? Now, of course, I said that some of them criticize it because there are five Greek words in the book of Daniel, and they say Greek was not a, a language until 300 years before Christ. I beg your pardon, it's where their ignorance outruns their mouth. And uh, because there were colonies of Greek-speaking people as early as 500 and 600 B.C. There were colonies of them. And this thing was, uh, of course, brought into focus by the Grecian Empire and became the language of the world. It was the most perfect language. It's strange. Time came. Christ came. I can't even talk today. Christ came in a time when religion was at its height. When the world had the most perfect language that men could devise, and that is the Greek language, by being able to take one verb, uh, every verb, just to say I am, Brother Green, there is a thousand inflectional endings that you can put on that word I am. And the word in the Old Testament, originally God, has no, has no vowels with it. If you put it like it, it is a, it is a verb that means to be, I am. It just means I am. The consonants of uh, the Hebrew language means I am. But anyway, that language became the language of the world. Sort of like English has covered the world today. And they spoke Greek. So for them to deny that there were just five, and Daniel, of course, and Mel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being young men in the Babylon Empire, and that empire had the Greeks in it. It was the language of the philosophers of that day. They were inundated with that language, and they were able to speak that language and that's why in the Aramaic part of the book of Daniel you have five Greek words it does not do away with it and they are able not able to defeat the fact of the authenticity of the date of the book of Daniel by reason of these several things that I mentioned to you here's a picture of Alexander the Great and Marvin Therese the Lesser standing down by that now some of the pictures that I show to you will be representative some of them are actual I uh, was able by grant and by help uh, from an oil company to study Egyptology. And uh, I'm going to show you pictures. Uh, maybe tomorrow I'll show you some pictures. Some of you haven't been to Egypt and to the Holy Land. The Pharaoh that is supposed to chase Moses into the sea. Would you like to see him or see his mummy? Not mommy, but mummy. Would you like to see? We'll show you one or two of those tomorrow if we have time. I will show you the oldest mummy alive or dead, whichever one he is. 
but actually older than Moses by the name of Nefer. We were on a tour, or not a tour, but we were with Dr. Souza, who is the head Egyptologist of the Cairo Museum, went with us. And we had permission. He took us and went with us out where they were excavating and took us down into a tunnel, down into the ground. And of Daniel. Here you have mentioned a king of the south already. Let's find that. I, I would try to be a little bit more detailed if I can. This is a, this of course is King Tut. I'm using it representative of Ptolemy. And this is in the, uh, well it tells about Alexander the Great in the fourth verse, his kingdom being divided. In the fifth verse, the king of the south shall be strong. The king of the south is Ptolemy Lagos. History affords that who that king of the south is. And uh, I, I'm not going to take time to read every verse. You can read that. But be sure that history names and talks about these individuals and these personages which are involved in the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel. Then it mentions uh, the daughter. If you will, please look in uh, the 6th verse and you'll read the king's daughter of the south. And this was none other than Bernice. I give you her picture here, if you will, please. Not real pretty, but uh, uh, she's got a beard. You notice that? That was, a, that was an accent of authority, and she had this attached to her chin to show her authority. Women still are doing that today, not beards, but wearing the pants and, uh, and so on, trying to show their authority. Well, uh, Bernice... Bernice, of course, took over. Uh, she married, had a marriage to Antiochus Theo, the king of the north. She, uh, however, was given up. If you'll read on down uh, where that uh, she was given up, the first wife, Antiochus' first wife, poisoned her and set her own son on the throne, whose name was Callimachus. And uh, so she actually didn't reign that long. Queen of the south. Uh, by the name of Bernice. That's in your Bible. I want you to realize what I'm doing today. I'm reading from the Bible and I'm quoting history at the same time. And I'm showing you that my God pointed out to Daniel the individuals and the events that would happen successively and they did come to pass. Praise God. I thank God He's never early. He's never late. But he's always right on time. Oh, glory, glory, glory. Amen. This is, uh, of course, now a branch in the seventh verse. It talks about a branch from her roots. One shall stand in his estate. And it describes him coming and revenging the death of, uh, of Bernice. Bernice, who replaced Antiochus Theos' first wife. But finally, the first wife poisoned Bernice, put her own son on the throne by the name of Callinicus. And because Bernice was dead, a branch from her roots, not a limb, not a twig, but go all the way back to the stump. Go all the way back to the stump and get a branch from her roots, which would have been her own family and was her own brother. And his name was Ptolemy Eurjectes. He avenged her death by killing the one who poisoned her. He dealt against Seleucus II, king of the north, and seized the fortress. Now, here uh, is an ancient uh, statue of Ptolemy Eurjectes. He has a falcon on his back. That is one of the most ancient forms of hunting that the world has ever known. That 
the falcon would, would be loosed and fly above the desert and seek the prey and would dive down, catch the prey, and return to its master. And that was the oldest form of hunting. That statue goes back uh, well to the time of Daniel, the one that you're looking at right there. This is a uh, statue of Ptolemy Eurjates, all right? And it says, he shall take away their gods of gold. So we're going to look at a few of the gods that, uh, that Ptolemy Eurjates carried into Egypt with him. Here is one of their gods. You notice he is on an altar. That altar is overladen with gold. Bible scholars will notice that it's carried on four poles, just like the Ark of the Covenant was carried on. But that God sitting on top of it is a horrible looking thing, isn't it? Kind of looks like a dog, but has a flat tail like a beaver. I'm glad I don't have to worship that thing. You go in the Egyptian museum, and if you could see everything there, it would take you three months. And uh, you still not would, would not see everything that you could see. But we had access to this, and they furnished us with bakshish, which is tips to allow us to get in. We made pictures of many things that tourists would not normally get to see because we were studying Egyptology. Now here is another picture of the gods that are worshipped. Here is the Pharaoh being nurtured by one of the gods, actually nursing from the cow, which was deity. They had dogs and cows and everything for their gods. Gods. These were the gods described that Ptolemy, your JTs, actually compiled and furnished Egypt with and lent them at that time. All right? And then uh, I, here's something I want to show you. We're talking about the history and the Bible. Let me just give you a quick resume of what I'm doing in the 11th chapter. All right? Everybody say all right. The Bible in verse 10 talks about his son shall be stirred up. These two sons, that's, that's what the Bible says in verse 10. History says these two sons were Seleucus and Antiochus the Great invaded the king of the south. We go along, I'm just skipping now. Verse 11 says the king of the south moves with choler or moves with anger. This history says was Ptolemy Philopater defeated Antiochus the Great in 217 B.C. The Bible says in verse 14 he comes with a great army. And history says there was a seesawing back and forth of all of this power. Now, the Bible says in verse 16, he shall, be con he shall stand in the glorious land and is consumed. That is not the Antichrist, but that is Antiochus the Great in, uh, in a battle of uh, 198 B.C. And uh, uh, somebody says, what was the Jews doing at these times? The Jews were trying to hold on under the leadership and the auspices of some of the leaders that they had known as the Maccabeans at that time. They were trying to hold on, swaying back and forth. Verse 17 describes, uh, it says that the king of the south shall give the king of the north uh, the daughter of women. And uh, they shall vie with one another at tables. Both of them shall know they're lying when they sit down to talk. But they go ahead and say, lie to me. And this describes Cleopatra who is a very famous person that you are familiar with. In verse 17, the daughter of Antiochus, uh, Cleopatra, is given to Ptolemy Epiphanes, and uh, she is called the daughter of women because at that time she was 13 years old. That's why she was called the daughter of women, and this was her second marriage already. But the Bible says she shall not stand 
with her father, but shall stand with her husband. This is exactly what Cleopatra did. She double-crossed her daddy and stood up for her husband. And he would go out and conquer lands and bring her uh, all of the treasures from the lands that he had conquered. Say, praise the Lord. You understand what I'm doing here today? I'm laying a foundation. I'm showing you the beast of revelations. I'm showing you Daniel 11. I'm showing you the hysterical and historical characters that are involved there. So that I picked up one of our uh, writings not long ago and I read where it says, and they shall be strong and do exploits. And our dear brother preached a wonderful message on revival in the end time and I believe in that. His text may be a little dubious, but uh, it was not referring to our day but was referring to the exploits of the Jews in the Maccabean period in trying to hold on to their status of the seesawing back and forth of the king of the north and the king of the south. And they, somebody said there was no voice of God. I doubt that. We just don't have a record of that at all between the testaments. But really, uh, when they went out to fight, there would be just a few of them to fight against a huge army out there. And they would stand and would have prayer and say, God of gods, give us the power to fight. And those few people of the Jews oftentimes miraculously were delivered by God during this period of time. They shall be strong and do exploits. And of course, it can be a type of the church if you won't accept it that way. But in actuality, the historical part of it points to the time of uh, in a testament period that I've given to you. This is Cleopatra, actually uh, representative, but uh, uh, not looking too bad ear chipped off but being that old you can't you can't knock it too much can you when you kind of get that old you're going to expect to look a little bad (laughs) amen so uh, a person that you are familiar with cleopatra is a part of bible history all right now let's deal with the word abomination of desolations this is what is very confusing everybody say abomination of desolation the word is actually plural It is even translated plural in Daniel 9 and 27. Read where there are abomination of desolations. All right? Abomination of desolations. There have been more than one abomination of desolation. There have been abomination of desolations. I I will, will show you what they are and why they are plural. It is actually a spirit of iniquity, Paul says, which is already working in that day. And will continue to work till now. All right? It's actually a spirit. But the word abomination of desolation has reference to profaning. And it's a very difficult thing to translate. But it is something like this. To make profane or common wing of the temple or high point of the temple or holy place or something very elevated in the temple. It just means to make very common that which is holy. That's all there is. That's all there is to it. Now, the first abomination, I believe, happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. I believe that that some of the scripture refers to him. Now, what he did looks just like what the Antichrist is going to do. He slew 80,000 Jews. His name was God Manifested. He slew 80,000 Jews. He took 40,000 into slavery and he sold 40,000 Jews. 
He caused all sacrifice and oblation to cease in the temple, as you read about. Some of us thought it was reserved only for the end time Antichrist. No, it happened in 175 B.C. by the man named Manifest God. And he offered a swine on the altar of the Jew, and the blood ran out the door, and the swine is a dirty animal to the Jew. He polluted the temple and actually abominated, made abomination of desolation, or he profaned the high place. All right? He is not the end-time antichrist or abomination because we are told down in 11 and 35, the end is not yet. So you don't confuse him with the beast of the end time. He says, for the end time is for yet a time, or still a time appointed. But he dedicated the, temp uh, the temple to a Greek god by the name of Jupiter Olympius. He did everything that the Antichrist is described in doing. But you are told in verse 35, the end is not yet. And then it goes on to describe the one later on that will be the end time antichrist. Now let me tell you this. I believe an abomination of desolations can happen right here today. You know why? Because we are the temple of the Holy Ghost right now. Thank God. And then it says collectively we are a temple too. There's a scripture that says collectively we are a temple. But we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And the scripture does not say he will not dwell in an unclean temple. We believe that, but the scripture doesn't say that. It says God will destroy him that defiles it. And the word defile is to make common or profane. Now, I hear a lot of this going on, and you may not agree with me, but I don't care flip whether you do or you don't. I hear people who take these things that are sacred, and they make them very common. Do not make common the high and holy things of God. Amen. I hear people using the word God and Lord like it was Bill Jones. Please don't do that. I walked into one of our preacher's kitchen some time ago and he said to his wife, completely out of context, said, my God, wife, what are you doing? I said, sir, are you praying or cussing? Oh, he said, what do you mean? I said, you're doing one or the other. You know what, you know what cursing or swearing is? It is involving God in an absurdity. God was not doing anything with that kitchen. He walked in and addressed God to a common, simple place of what was going on in that kitchen. Let me tell you something. When you name the name of Christ, what does the Bible say? The word is apostato, which means to depart or fall away in one particular case, but it means to depart. Quit sinning when you name the name of Christ. Amen? Now the Jew, let me tell you this, the word God in the Old Testament was an unpronounceable name. Four consonants put together. The Masoretes furnished the vowels in later years and made it to the word Jehovah, which we have. But originally, it was only four consonants that were unpronounceable. And I said a while ago, it was a verb to be. It was unpronounceable. The Jews still say the God who has no name. 
they don't even know who the name of their God is. I'm happy to tell you I know what his name is. But I'll tell you one thing, when they wrote that word, Alvazita, hey, when they wrote those letters down, they threw away the pen because it had performed its highest duty and was never to be used again. When the Jews spoke the name of deity, either the word God or unpronounceable God, he kicked off the dust of his feet because that where he stood was holy ground and he stepped aside. Because the place where he was standing was holy ground, he had just mentioned the name of his God or had mentioned the word God. That is why in all oriental worship, especially the Jew, watch them at the wailing wall. I don't know whether I'll have time to show films in this particular conference tonight. I've got some of Let My People Go and the late great planet Earth and so on. I don't know whether we'd ever have time for that or not. But you watch them at the wailing wall and they are in constant motion. You know why? Because they are constantly invoking the word God. And they cannot be still when they use that word. They must move. All oriental worship, we're sitting today like gods. This is the posture of gods, sitting and being still. But the posture of worship is motion. Amen. I taught this, Brother Beckton picked it up and said something about it somewhere. I, I'll tell you what, you read in the book of Revelation, the four creatures which represents all creation. We'll get to that, I hope. But uh, these creatures, actually there, the word is not beasts, the word is living ones. They are, they cease not bodily motion, night and day. They are continually in motion. And they say, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, Pantecoteras, he which was and which is and Malon which is about to come. Praise God. By the time you get to the 11th chapter, you can take that out of the original. Let's not say he which is about to come. The 11th, 16th chapter, it's just he who was and is and has taken great staying power unto himself. Oh, glory. Are we going to have a time around here this week? If you'll stay with me, we're going to go into some of that stuff. And I don't mean to be trying to show you uh, or show off or anything, but I love the Word of God. And I know you love the Word of God. And because we love it, we're looking at it. Amen? We're looking at it and we're, we're thanking God for it. But let me tell you what, brother. There ought to be some movement connected with our worship. I was preaching, I was preaching for Brother Kilgore one time and he had his black congregation, black church sitting there. And they was already moving pretty good. But when I told them that actually the posture of worship was movement, you're talking about coming unglued. Amen. And I got over in the book of Revelation. I started the book of Revelation. This is the uncovering of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. They thought I was talking in tongues. They didn't know I was quoting from the Greek. Somebody was going to try to interpret it for me. Amen. All right. <laughs> but... Uh, all right, but I wanted you to look at the abomination. To, I believe we ought to keep it clean, don't you? Let there be motion in worship. Let us move when we talk about God. Amen. Look at the old, look at the old Arab. Brother Kershaw taught me the Arabic prayer years ago. They, they, you can see them. I don't care whether it's on a golf course, on the street, on the bus, or where they are. Brother, when it comes time for prayer, they start to pray. 
All right? Yes, sir. I was on a plane going over one time, and I noticed these all these Muslims with these rags on, and they all got up and they go back. And I went, where are they all going? I act like I had to go use the bathroom. I got up and went with them. And uh, I found out they took over the galley in there where the stewardess was trying to serve my lunch, and they had taken over that place and put their little claws down. I don't know how they knew which way was east because that plane was circling. And <laughs> but they got down on the floor. But you watch them. They're never still. I should do la hala 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 la roma and rasulallah. Then on the knees, I should do la hala hala la roma and rasulallah. I should do la hala hala la roma and rasulallah. On and on and on. They do that over and over again. I don't care if the whole world's looking at them. Acres of them out there all moving. They will not be still. When they pray the prayer Allah, they move to their knees. When they say Allah again, they move to their face because that word is holy. The word abomination of desolations was a familiar term to the people who would make common the high place and would desecrate the temple of God. You, sir, are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And whoever defiles it, God will destroy it. There is more of a purpose of our being filled with the Holy Ghost than we originally thought. It's not just to shout. It's not just to have a good time, and that goes along with it. It's not just to take us to heaven. Listen, if God all he'd wanted was to take me to heaven, he'd have killed me five minutes after he gave me the Holy Ghost. I'd have been ready to go then, but he had something in mind is the reason he left me here. Thank God. He wants to take a man that is a sinner and clean him up and make him holy and make him a temple of God and let everybody see what a temple of God is actually supposed to be like. Hallelujah. Amen. Everybody say, God help us to move in this service. God help us to move in the study of the Word of God. When you speak His name, move. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> Oh, glory, glory, glory. Don't pay attention to that yet, but stay with me right here. In Jamaica, I had no problem getting them to move. We get out long later in, the, in Revelation. I show them a picture of the coming of the Lord. It took me 10 minutes to get them quieted down. I guess, okay, 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 okay. Let's go on. Because, brother, when they saw just a picture of heaven or glory of the coming of the Lord, one place I showed a picture of hell, a lot of artists' conception of it, and they went wild. Amen. I don't understand it, but they, they moved plenty. I, I would to God we could kind of get a little going sometime. I mean, I'm tired of a setting like God saying, do something for me. Let's leech match the worship of the rest of the world and move about the worship. All right. Now, prophecy that blends. I've got, uh, I've rumped this together for you. Let me tell you something about prophecy. When you look at prophecy, it's like looking at a mountain range in the distance. It looks like one peak juts out of another. But when you get into the mountains, you find there are valleys and miles between them. Now the prophet prayed and spoke about himself oftentimes in prayer, but that was a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the things that are spoken of me in the psalm. David prayed for himself. Psalms 22 is a messianic psalm. Jesus said, Luke 24, things spoken of me in the psalms. Prophecy blends with the future. There is a spirit of God and a spirit of Satan that connects with it. And one event will look like it, but it blends into another of a future. 
Can I show you? Antiochus Epiphanes of Daniel 11, 21-31, actually blends with the Antichrist of the end time in chapter 11, 36 and 41. These are two different ones, but they blend together. Jesus spoke of destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, and then he spoke of the last day. He just went slickly in Matthew 24. Jesus went quickly from the destruction of Jerusalem right to the destruction at the end of the world. Why? Because to him, he just sees everything blowing away like chaff on the summer threshing floor. You and I see 2,000 years. We see kings and wars and presidents and nations and upheaval. But my Lord is so great and powerful, he can look at the nations of the world and see them just blowing away and it's nothing more than the chaff on the summer threshing floor. I say, oh, great is our God that is able to be so God of magnanimity that it can speak in this particular frame. Praise God. So that often happens. Somebody says, I'm confused. Was that Jerusalem or was that to the end of the world? They blend and it takes more than the wisdom of Solomon for you to figure out which one it is having reference to. Because once there was Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of the Antichrist, then Titus comes along, we'll show you tomorrow, and he is another type of the Antichrist and destroys and pollutes the temple once again. Uh, Titus Vespasian in the year of AD 70. Jesus was prophesying much and, and all together. I believe in Luke tw uh, 21, I believe he was having reference to that. Amen. Where he would destroy the temple. We won't have time to get to those particular scriptures. But uh, Titus in AD 70, Daniel 9 and 26, he is not called the prince, but he is called the people of the prince. He was not the Antichrist prince, but he was only a people of it. Neither was Antiochus Epiphanes the prince, but he too was the people of the prince. What you've got is the spirit, I say. You see how prophecy can blend. Let me show you another one if I can. Well, the beast of the end time, I've, I've shown you that. Titus, the mystery of iniquity, I'll show you that one. But let me show you one more uh, that's not up there. You remember the Bible said in Zechariah, they shall look on him whom they have pierced? That's right. Well, John says, thus fulfilled the scripture, they shall look on him whom they pierced. That's true. It was fulfilled there, but reference is made again, once again in the book of Revelation, and it talks about looking on him whom they pierced. But the rest of that scripture says, and they shall say, where did you receive these wounds? And they said, we, he said, I received them in the house of my friends. Well, I know that wasn't all fulfilled by John looking at the cross because there was no need asking how did you get these wounds. They knew how they got them. They were making them right there. But you see, Christ will be a constant reminder. That's why you have a lame, lamb with his throat cut in the book of Revelation as a constant reminder of the death of Jesus Christ and his power to deliver us. Say praise the Lord. That is one of the biggest subjects that there, there is in the Bible. And one of the most confusing things that uh, people shall ever see. Would you stand up with me just a moment? I said there ought to be movement. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to a close here in just a little bit. We, uh, we have to move along real fast. Shake hands with your neighbor right there. Amen. Tell him to spark up. All right. Amen. <laughs> All right. Amen. 
I say that's one of the biggest subjects that you can study is how prophecy blends. I wish I had time just to run through the Bible and show you. Somebody says that looks like it's talking about one thing. Yes, it is. But it is a type of the other. You see, Jesus Christ foretold and prototyped the church with many things in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was a type of the church, was it not? Was, uh, many, many things. These are all examples. If that's true of the church, it's also true of the devil. He has many a type in the Old Testament and you find those things blending into one. You may be seated and I'll hurry along. All right. Now it says of him, he shall take the most fenced cities. You're looking right now at the pyramids that's right near the pyramids of Cheops. He shall take the most fenced cities. I have given this, this to show you that one time Egypt was divided. There was an upper and a lower Egypt. One was ruled by a woman and the other was ruled by a man. But in Isaiah it said, I will say of Pharaoh my servant, the serpent in the Nile. I will set my altar on thy border. Yet in the midst of thee. Confusing. I will set my altar on thy border. Yet in the midst of thee. Now these pyramids, and I've got a corner here of the great pyramid of Cheops. They don't even know who he was. But I'm showing you that corner. Show them in a line. This once divided Egypt. Now how could it be that God would set an altar on the border and yet it become in the midst of thee? Because the great pyramid that they talk about and try to give you history that they don't know actually was the dividing line. But that which was on the border the king of the north married the queen of the south or vice versa and that there was one Egypt so that the altar that was on the border is now in the midst or in the middle. All right? Let me, let me give you a theory. And this was narrated on television not long ago. I didn't see it, of course. But uh, Omar Sharif uh, narrated it and, and gave this. It is quite a familiar thing. It is one of the wonders of the world. You know why? Let me tell you a few things about the pyramid. And I'm having reference to that fence city that uh, they would take. They took this fence city. Because, let me give you these, these figures. The, the distance of the base of the pyramid, the circumference, inches converted to miles is the exact distance from the earth to the sun. The computed weight of each stone of the great pyramid converted to uh, years or miles, pardon me, to weight, exact distance of the earth, that's right, exact circumference of the earth, the weight, that's right. All right. There are 144,000 granite stones in the Great Pyramid. 144,000. I don't know, I do not believe that is Egypt, uh, because everything that is of Egypt has hieroglyphics, which is holy writings all over them, whether it's an arrow head or a little tiny button. There are no hieroglyphics on the Great Pyramid. They don't know how it got there. Mistress, how it works. All right, let me tell you this. You start from the base of it up to the door. Where are you going, Brother Tim? Have you been in it? Have you ever been in it? From the base where you go up to go in the door... Inches converted to years is the time from, uh, from uh, Adam to Abraham. All right? When you go in, you start climbing straight up. 
And from there to what is called the Queen's Chamber, straight up, is from Abraham to Jesus Christ, inches converted to years. After you get to the Queen's Chamber, you can stand up and still climb on up to the top. And once again, inches converted to years is to 1982. That is why Gene Dixon pre predicted the end of the world in 1982. That is the reason the person who wrote the book today, The Dollar Diary, pre pre predicted the end of the world in 1982. You are ignoramus to put a date on the coming of the Lord. When he said specifically himself, you won't know that. And I just take it good and flat for that. But I, the reason I don't believe that they know how long it really is to the top, because there is no top. All right? There is no top to it. I've shown you this picture. Brother Green, against the law, climbed the Great Pyramid. And they were hollering at him. He got near the top before they said, hey, oh my. He went ahead and climbed up to the top. Quite a job, quite a job he climbed up. But he wanted to make you a picture of how it looks. See, the other one's got a point. This one has no point. It's flat on top. There is no top to it. The capstone is thrown away. Here's a very interesting thing. Where it says of Jesus Christ, He is the chief cornerstone. The word in the original is capstone. And there is only one capstone, and that is on a pyramid that fits all four sides. The reason they call it cornerstone, we think of a cornerstone like I build and I hear some sort of plaque. No, the cornerstone was the stone, and I, if I could describe how they build these things. They start down here, when man made it, I don't believe man made this one, but I believe they, they start down here, I've seen how they were made and studied it, and they go all the way to the top, and one of the first things they put up there is that capstone. And then they draw the corners down to the base. And then they just build to those corners. That is why it is called a cornerstone, but it is really a capstone. Now, they started trying to do it a different way with a famous one called the Bit Pyramid that I have seen and studied. They started out from the bottom without a capstone and found out their angle was wrong, and so they bent it when they got up to the top, and it's bent. It's called the Bent Pyramid. It's in Arab army territory. We had to bribe an army chief, and we had to bribe a tribal chief to get by there, and we got right out by where their missiles were sitting and made some pictures of the Bent Pyramid. And that tribal chief was raving, get out of here, they're going to kill us all. <laughs> we did, we got out of there. <clears throat> but I, I wanted to show you this. But Jesus Christ is the chief capstone. I personally believe that that altar was, or that thing was put there as some sort of mark by God in the earth. They don't know how old it is. You can throw a cat in there, dead, and he will mummify. I went into it, and I got as sick as a dog the moment I walked in. My wife and daughter continued to climb. They climbed up the queen's chamber, and I got so sick that I sat down on the floor. And they, up there at the queen's chamber, waved at me, you know, and I waved my hand back. They climbed on up the king's chamber. I got sicker, and I was on the ground and passed out, laying on the ground, and they were waving at me like idiots down there, you know. What got wrong with me? I don't know what got wrong with me. I got up and I walked 
and I about half stumbled and half crawled out of there and felt fine. But when I was in there, I got sick. I, I, there's so many mysteries to it, I can't tell you. It is one of the wonders of the world because of the mysteries. I've seen a stack of IBM 1120 uh, IBM computer uh, recordings that were made a stack this high that they made shooting rays into the Great Pyramid trying to detect different tunnels. Did you know they cannot get a, the same reading from the same place at any given time? The re it defies radiation. Yes, sir. There is a tunnel. When you go in the door, there is a tunnel that winds down into the belly of the earth to nowhere. You go on up to the queen's chamber, there is another one that winds down, intersects that one, and goes to nowhere. A type of hell. I'll tell you who I believe the chief capstone is. I believe it's Jesus Christ. The reason I don't believe, I believe they had to stop at 1982 is because that's as far as you can go with human figuring. We've got everything there. But Jesus Christ is that extra denominator. He is that extra equation that goes into it. And nobody will be able to figure it because he said it is reserved. No man will know that. I believe someday that shall be kept. Praise God. But it has remained a mystery until now. 144,000 granite stones. And there's going to be 144,000 12 tribes of Israel. All right? I've got to hurry. Maybe we'll get on that later. I'll try to show you some more pictures of, of um, Egypt and Egyptology before it's over with. I go to verse 36 of Daniel 11. The reason I'm showing this Antichrist here at the end of the world is because it is part of Daniel. You go right from Antiochus Epiphanes in the 35th verse, and you go right to the 36th verse, to a king who shall do according to his own will, and begins to describe, and it says he shall just continue and do that until the time is appointed upon him. Now that's all. But let me show you a little bit of the description of him that's given in Daniel 11 and 36 throughout the rest of that chapter. Can I describe him just a moment? It said, He shall magnify himself above every god that is called God. This is called Maharaja Ji. Uh, I don't believe he is the Antichrist, but I'm showing you how the world is willing to accept an Antichrist. This man claims a following of over 5 million followers. And in, uh, in the Astrodome in Houston not long ago, he proclaimed his kingdom, the millennium and people are sending money and they are praising him and worshiping him as though he is God. I do not believe he is the Antichrist, but I'm showing you that this old world is getting ready for one. When they can, a thousand of them can follow Jim Jones down into the jungle and, 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 and let him follow him even to death. It shows you the kind of world we're coming to right now. I believe the Antichrist will be a charmer and be a power that the world will follow after into an nth degree. All right? The rise of the Antichrist. And here is his number that was used in our district. I, I uh, loaned whoever was in charge of that prophecy conferences at that time. You've seen that slide before, haven't you, in our district on signs. That, that 666 is on a building in New York. It is supposed, they tell you it is an address. Learn this one thing about the European common market. They will lie to you about everything concerning them. Amen. All right? Uh, son, would you look at my briefcase right here real quickly? And I want to get something while I'm right there. I want to show you something. And get that coin, please. <clears throat> they will lie to you about everything. They say, they say, no, 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 that's just our address. 
They are fixing to move. They build a building in Lake Charles, I found out yesterday, and it is called a 666 complex. That number is appearing everywhere. Buy some articles in the common market country, it has 666 stamped in it. That number is appearing everywhere. It's being thrown out. It's down in the bottom there, son. Just laying in that little folder. All right? Thank you. The reason I, I had him to get this is because they deny they have currency. Uh, the European common market. They deny they have currency. I used to have what was called a universero. It was silver. So is this one. But it had, it had the face of nine world leaders at that time, only nine. <laughs> and hands that joined, nine hands that joined around it. On the back was a balance of a scale that held oil on one side and wheat and barley on the other. And it had the inscription 666 stamped on it. Somebody said, oh, that's only 999 tenths percent pure. That's what that means. I said, however, that's, the, that's what 666 is. You invert it and it's 999, which is an attempt at perfection. And falls short one. Amen. Just a fraction, that's all, it falls short. So I, I showed that around. Somebody stole the corn from me one night while we were in service and I was letting people see it. So don't let anybody see them from now. But they, that corn is gone. But I, I messed around and I got what, uh, what is this called, a moon dinero? Yeah, this is a moon dinero if I'm not mistaken, a world coin. But a friend of mine, we they got to check it out long ago, and they called the bank uh, in New York, World Banking System, and they said, there are no such, there, are, there is no such money. There's no such money at all. He said, is that right? Can you uh, tell me? He said, I know where there are some. He said, we don't have any. We don't know anything about it. Called the European Common Market in Brussels, Belgium, and asked for a universero. They said, we have no coins. He said, you're storing. He said, I got a friend that's got one. And he told him, he described it to him, and said he has now got a moon dinero. And they said, well, those are not supposed to be in circulation at this time. Why do they lie about everything that they go to do? All right? But that number is being thrown around. We'll talk about it more and more. And on the last day, if I think I'll be able to tell you what... I believe 666 means, and what a student who was a student of John said 666 was. I'll tell you that on the last day when we talk about the beast and his battle. But that number of the Antichrist is going to be, you'll have to stay with me, brother. It's going to get, it's going to get thicker and thieves around here. Amen. We're going to get a little deeper and just a little farther and a little farther and a little farther. I say once again, for the sake of enjoying his word, we do it. Shall we hurry? Praise God. Are you doing all right? Say praise the Lord if you don't know it. Now it says, He shall not regard the desire of women. I've shown you this picture here to show you some young ladies at a Beatles concert, weeping and in ecstasy, passing out and fainting because of the gyrations and the physical, uh, sexual, and sensuous actions of the performers. But the Antichrist that is coming... I've heard a lot of description on that, but the original language lets you know that it's pretty close to this, that he will be a homosexual. Do not regard the desire or the affection of women. 
Why is it the close of every civilization and society, that's the straw that always breaks the camel's back? Amen. The unisex thing. Amen. Can't tell the man from the woman. Amen. Hear me? This is my personal feeling. We are raising too many limp-wristed sissies in the United Pentecostal Church. And I'm not saying that just to be tough. I'm very serious. If you're here and you sing first tenor, dear sir, I sing it too, but I got a voice. You know it ain't a woman. You get out behind the voice somewhere and you gruff your voice up, will you? Amen. You learn how to talk and act and quit prancing around. Oh, my. I believe it was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the last straw of Pompeii. It was what tore Rome down, was sodomy and perversion. And brother, let me tell you what, they are now forcing their way into every segment of life and trying to make the world accept them as being normal and not sick. But I'm here to tell you, if you've got to prove you're not sick, you are. I don't walk around saying, I'm not sick. I'm not sick. I'm well. I'm not sick. It's just like one lady come up to me one night. I, I told him, I said, anybody wants to be saved, come up and shake my hand. I'll be glad to pray for you. This is not handshake religion. We're not taking members of the church, but you're just making a quest of prayer. All right, here come this lady painted up like a Christmas tree down the aisle. And she come up and shook hand me. She said, now, I want you to know that I'm saved. I said, fine, ma'am. We'll be glad to pray for you. And start, But she said, I want you to know I'm saved. Oh, okay, we'll pray for you. And she started walking back the third time. She said, but now I want you to understand. I didn't come down here because I'm not saved. I said, ma'am, who are you trying to convince, me or God? Amen. Amen. I don't, if you are, you don't have to keep telling me about it. Just be it. That's all. If you're not a sissy, you don't have to tell me. I just see it in you. It's just written all over you are. I went to the store in Houston the other day, and, and the old boy there, I told him, I said, I, I didn't like him anyway. He walked up, brother. Oh, it just actually stunk to me nearly. And they talking to me, funny sissy, like, you know. I started walking out, and I said, oh, it's too much money, too much money. He said, well, that's all we want to do, just spin, spin, spin. And I just turned around and walked off. I couldn't even answer. <laughs> Amen. Oh, dear brother. God help us. Amen. But he will actually crystallize that situation. He will be, I believe, a pervert and will set it forth, not regard or pay any attention. worship they're all sissies now poor boys you don't know why you're going around with your hair over your ear you don't know why that is you don't know I want to know I wonder what that little bit of difference makes why, what, why can't you get it up just a little more what difference does that make I'll tell you you watch them they will be led back to it they will go back to it constantly. Just that little bit of hair over their ear. They gotta have that. Oh, I'm telling you, I tell you what scares me is you're going along with the spirit that is the spirit of iniquity that's been working in this world a long time ago. That's the danger, ain't it? Somebody said, and I get this question all the time, can you tell me how long is long in the Bible? I sure can. If I had time to give it to you, I'd give it to you. It's it's quite quite lengthy and quite wordy.
boys, you don't know why you're going around with your hair over your ear. You don't know why that is. You don't know. I want to know, I want to what that little bit of difference makes. Why, what, why can't you get it up just a little more? What difference does that make? I'll tell you, you watch them. They will be led back to it. They will go back to it constantly. Just that little bit of hair over their ear. They gotta have that. Oh, I'm telling you, I tell you what scares me is you're going along with the spirit. That is the spirit of iniquity that's been working in this world a long time ago. That's the danger in it. Somebody said, and I get this question all the time, can you tell me how long is long in the Bible? I sure can. If I had time to give it to you, I'd give it to you. It's, it's quite quite lengthy and quite wordy, but it absolutely tells you how long long is. All right? It's a present participle which is linear in action, durative and must be translated with a durative quality action, which means not cutting at all. All right? With a man, it means to continue, keep cutting, coma. All right? Oh, glory, 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 glory. It gets a lot deeper now. My Lord fixed it where you'd know what to do with it. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And I'm going to tell you what, when the church is going around clean-shaven with a haircut and the women looking right, I believe that the Spirit of God will take me right into the flow of that and it won't be too long until I be doing the same thing. I've got to go. I've got to go. He will regard only the God of forces. Only the God of forces. Here is, a, to me, a mistaken theory. You may believe it, and that's quite all right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to hit you or hurt you for nothing. But they mix up Antiochus Epiphanes with the Antichrist in the book of Daniel and talking about peace. He comes with peace. The Antichrist makes a peace covenant with Israel, but he only honors the God of forces. Now, when we get on the matter of the rapture, that's going to be real important. He honors only the God of forces. When he is introduced, he comes as a red horse with power, with a great sword, with war and fights. He honors only the God of forces. The one who came with flattering lies as a peacemaker was Antiochus Epiphanes. He did it glibly and slyly and slipped in and got them and performed his work and was gone. All right? Time is running out on this old world. As Brother Tinney mentioned, there's the hourglass, and nothing is about left in the top, but, Brother, it's all. I believe with all of my heart, time is about to run out. I've had people say, give me a date and all of your calculations, and tomorrow you'll hear calculations. When I taught in Canada, Brother Coolin said, I would have done better to brought my calculator instead of my Bible. Well, the Lord is very definite with his times. He does give them. And I, people have tried to push me and say, tell me when you think it's going to be. Jesus said I shouldn't do it, and I'm not going to do it. But he says, you're a hypocrite if you can't discern the signs of the times. And I can prove to you that he's having reference to his being there as Messiah with what he was talking about. All right? Time's running out. Now it says the king of the north and the king of the south. He actually, in the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel, goes into the wars. I don't have time for it today. I'll describe that on the last day. Goes into the wars of, of the last time. The ancient specter of war. It describes somewhat the countries that are there. And there is that ancient specter of war that's raising its head. And isn't it amazing? Now here is an unusual picture. Here you have Russia mounted on horses doing desert 
maneuvers. This is a very rare picture, and they are uh, in preparation for Ezekiel 38. They are mounted on horses. Russia owns two-thirds of the horse population of the world. All right, after the Antichrist defeats Russia, we'll get into all of this. I'm skipping over it. He has to defeats them. Then in the 41st verse, he enters into the glorious land. Up till this time, he has fought for Israel outside of Palestine. After he whipped several countries, he enters into the glorious land, sets up his palace in the most glorious holy mountain, and says, now, boys, I not only want your economic support, military support, but I want your worship. That's when the Jews are going to turn because they are monotheists. They believe in only one God. That's the reason they refuse Jesus Christ is because they only believe in one God. We're just happy to recognize him as being that one God. Hallelujah to God. And Isaiah says there's going to come a day when they're going to hear a voice behind them. Hallelujah to God. And they're going to have to turn around and see where they missed him 2,000 years ago. Uh, here it's looking at he shall enter in Jerusalem this is the eastern gate many of you have seen that and uh, little Arab boy was talking to me over at the Intercontinental Hotel when we made these pictures and he said uh, you see those gates over there I said yeah he said that's been closed up since Jesus Christ time but he's going to come back one of these days and go through those eastern gates amen I told him son it's going to be a whole new city for him to come into when he comes hallelujah to God a whole new one but you're looking at it there now Oh, brother, brother, time's getting away. Got to go. Oh, my, 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 my. But it says, Edom and Moab shall escape out of his hand. I just simply tell you this. God is going to preserve Israel in general. Underline Israel in general in Moab and Edom and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now, uh, what countries are these? You go down. Uh, this is uh, this is the land of Edom. Those rocks up there, supposedly where uh, Aaron's supposed to have died, that's the mountains of Edom. And uh, uh, Moses said to the king of Edom, Let me pass, I pray thee, through thy land. I'll not take of the water of thy wells and the fruit of thy vineyard. But we'll stay by the king's highway, and we'll not turn to the right and to the left till we get beyond your borders. The king wouldn't let him pass through there, but that's my one request to this world. Just let me through, I pray thee. Thank God. I'll not eat of the fruit of your vineyard, nor eat of the drink of the water of your well, but I'll travel by the king's highway, and I'm not going to turn to the right and to the left till I get beyond your borders. They wouldn't do it. Wouldn't let him pass through, so he had to go back down to Sinai and come up through Moab, and I'll show you the plains of Moab. These countries will escape out of the hands of the Antichrist, it says, Edom and Moab. I showed you Edom. Here is Moab and a friend of mine right outside the window. The reason I didn't get out of the car is because the better ones will kill you if you get out there and try to make their picture. I was happy to make his picture right there. All right. But the, this is the plane. I believe God will take Israel in general and hide them the last few months of that terrible last time. Hide them in the Moab. Then it mentions a person. Go back if you don't mind. It mentions a person, the chief of the children of Ammon, uh, Ammon or Ammon, which is Jordan. And Hussein is one of our closest allies today in, in that particular area or has been up this time. So it's probably talking about Jordan, Moab, and Edom. What country are we talking about? Uh, this is a place called Petra. Petra, a place, a rock city. Rock city. Can I stop here long enough on the word Petra? That is a huge rock. Jesus did not say of Peter, whose name was Petros, upon this Petros, which is a simple, small rock, I build my church, but he said, I build my church on this rock ledge, Petra. 
He did not build it upon Peter. He built it upon a huge rock ledge. Not a Petros, not one stone, thank God. But Petros, this is carved out of the rock. I believe it's very possible, and many people believe that God will take Israel in general into this place in the canyons, and, uh, and these houses are carved out of the rock. This is called the treasury, and uh, dates back to 200 years before Christ, to the time of the Nabataeans, who were uh, Arabs. Some of them still live there today. All right? Then it describes the last battle in Daniel 11. The last battle of the world will be the kings of the armies of the east. All right? This, of course, is Red China, a very unusual picture of them mounted upon camels doing desert warfare. Here they are preparing. I believe that will be the last battle of the world with the arms. And in Revelations, notice this. The original does not say the armies of the kings of the east, but it says the armies of the rising sun. Kings of the rising sun. So uh, I'm just covering it to let you know that that is all in Daniel 11. It's a great chapter that covers time all the way back from Persia all the way to the Antichrist, to the, to the uh, kings of the east, which is Red China in the end of time. Everything is focusing around Jerusalem, Armageddon, from Russia and all over the world. Uh, isn't it strange how that the Middle East is the focus of the world? He said of Jerusalem, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone. Everybody is bothered by Jerusalem. If we could just forget that place, it is no bigger or better than other cities only in the mind of God. It is strategic in the Word of God and it's strategic in the world of men. And brother, he is making it a burdensome stone today. All the events that are occurring, such as making Jeru uh, Jerusalem the headquarters of the capital, and such as uh, West Bank and so on, these are all politics, but it's all going their way. It's coming the way that God has so planned. And then finally, it describes the battle, uh, the last place where they will fight. This is the Valley of Jezreel. And uh, this, as Napoleon looked at that, that's the Valley of Jezreel, Armageddon, and described it, the Valley of Armageddon, uh, and Napoleon said, I am looking at the world's most perfect battlefield. Our guide told us that you're looking where the final battle of the world will be fought. And when I looked at that place all sprinkled with its ghosts and its palm dates and its, its uh, vegetation, I thought, Lord, the next time I look at this, I may be looking at it from the back of a white horse. Hallelujah to God. Thank God. The next time I see it, I want to be coming with him in glory on that great and glorious day. Hallelujah. But you're looking at the place described as the valley or the, uh, the mountain or valley of arm of slaughter, Armageddon is slaughter in the book of God. But the world is near the breaking point. Here's an individual reading his newspaper where the world is near the breaking point and there is the nuclear the explosion in the background and just such a terrible upheaval and holocaust it will be. A conflagration like the world has never seen. When the Lord says, I make war with you with the words of my mouth. Hallelujah to God. I make war with you with the words of my mouth. Let me tell you what, brother. My Lord has described himself as wind, as fire, amen, and as water. These are wonderful elements.
until you see the ocean raging and boisterous and a Eurocrodon coming. All of these have the potential forces of destruction. The spirit which is gentle tugging with us today and leads us in godliness someday will have the force to wreak destruction upon this world. Thank God. And I am so happy that I belong to him. Live, die, seek, or swim. I believe he's going to take care of us in a day to come. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Aren't you glad you know the truth today and you're ready for it? And finally the Lord writes finish upon the world and says it is over. And when that is over, I want to be somewhere in the bosom of God Almighty. I personally believe that God is going to take us out of here and I want to be in that number. Hallelujah to God. That is my personal belief about it. Glory to God and I adjure you today. Oh my, if you don't have that Spirit of God, please make yourself ready so that you can. Can you give us the light? Let's lift our hands and love the Lord together. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Hallelujah. Now it gets a little more exciting the farther along as we go and the more involved that we get. Now, I explained that all I was trying to do was just build some sort of foundation. You understand that? And, and I am having to just skip over everything and just touch on it. Uh, I, it is really to my liking to have a, uh, you know, a situation where I can go down every verse and say what I feel like is there. Amen. I teach no new doctrines. I teach no strange doctrines. I'm only trying to lay it out in some sort of order and organization where the scriptures might be a little bit more helpful to us along that line. I don't want you to ask questions that involve beyond what I have gone tonight. I will answer most of them, or some of them at least, not most of them, but some of them, uh, I will answer them at least to my satisfaction. Answer them to your satisfaction may be a different thing altogether. But uh, over what I have covered so far, I'd be glad for you to ask a question about it, all right? All right. <clears throat> On the ten horns, we have what is called the European Community of Nations, or commonly called the common market. I do not say that is the beast of the end time. It may change its name. It will probably, you see, the Roman Empire was never straight, same two days straight running. That's what people don't understand. It was changed constantly. So when you say the revived Roman Empire, you, you're talking about something that's rather uh, ambivalent because it was not the same two days straight running. But I believe that there will be a federation of ten nations for the last time. I believe that for Maine, those nations are formed now. Now Ireland is fixing to be dropped and Spain is fixing to be added, which will conform a little bit more to the politics probably of Rome. But I believe now they have, today, isn't it strange, in your Bible it predicts both in Daniel and Revelation the last form of world government will be a federation of ten nations. And isn't it strange that there are, if you can look at it, they a matter of the free world, those ten nations which are going, they started out as an economic community, but did you know more and more they are exerting political influence everywhere they go. 
You remember in the Iranian hostage situation, it was, it was the common market which put the pressure on Iran finally and said, turn them loose. Do you remember that? That slipped through us and slipped by us, but they exerted political pressure upon Iran to let them go. How effective it was in the total uh, scenario, I'm not sure. But I do not say that it will be called common market. But I believe that the main exists now. The nuclear is there for those nations. Uh, and uh, they may change like Ireland be replaced with Spain. That probably will happen. There will be some changing perhaps to go on. I have slides of the progress and the disintegration of the Roman Empire. And just almost every year it was shifting and sliding and changing. But now as far as the Apocrypha, that scares a lot of people, and I cannot enter into, in, in this discussion, into textual criticism. I have a doctorate in textual criticism and paleography as well as eschatology, but I cannot enter into it because it would hinder the faith of some. Amen. Truth is truth, and it's there. Amen. We have our Bible, which is what we need. Amen. I say that's all you need. Now, apocrypha only means hidden, the hidden ones. That was, that's a blurb or that is a, an, an epithet given to it because certain ones wanted it. It was included in many of the ancient manuscripts, the apocrypha, the books, and, and I read them and I have them, but I do not preach them for Bible. All right? The reason is, is because some of them are removed by their absurdity. Yeah, Baal and the dragon, Judith and, and so on. They, they are removed by their absurdity. But it's just like you go into a bookstore now. You can pick up some books that tell the truth just like it is. And you could say that's God inspired. And you can go in the same bookstore and pick up some other book that's talking about the same things, use the same terminology, and comes out the wrong direction. And I cannot tell you how uh, that is a study that, that is, takes a long, long time and many years for you to ever appreciate and be able to use it rightly. But for the main thing, he's talking about the New King James Version, for the main thing is just simply trying to make it easier for you. Get this, all new translations are not literal. You cannot buy a literal translation because you could not read it. You couldn't understand it. It's backwards. It's mixed up. You couldn't understand it. But to tell you the truth, you don't have the original King James either. I've got both of them. I've got the new one and I've got the old one. You can't read it either. But I can tell you this. I've studied, and I'm not bragging on myself, but to show you the extent of where I have been in the matter, and I hate to see, Brother Tim, I'm sorry, but I hate to see articles written on it by preachers who have never ciphered one word. They don't know the first thing they're doing. They're picking up what somebody else has written about it, and that's all they're saying. I'm going to tell you this. The more you know about it, the least you have to say about it. That's right. That's exactly right. That's the reason that I say you've got your Bible, and I've got the Greek. If you can't pick that up and read it like that, then just take the good old King James. It's good enough to save you soul. Amen. 
Now all I do, all I do with the Greek and all I believe that it does is just to make clearer and plainer because I believe the closer you get to what the apostle said it, the better our truth shines. All right? I believe this is the truth. And I have been shot at from every angle, and I've been picked by people who knew the Greek, and I've been picked by people who went to school and learned the Greek from a little book about that thick, and they try to try to play down, but brother, I'm telling you what, amen, the closer you get to the way it was said, the more our gospel shines, because I believe they preach it exactly the way the truth of God is. I wish... I wish I had a whole five-hour course right here just to take you in the light of baptism in the original and show you how that our gospel shines as far as Jesus' name baptism is concerned. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, that, that's a big subject, and I'm not going to... But uh, just for the sake of you that's here, if you'd like to see, I have... Somebody said, what kind... What text do you have? What manuscripts there... You see, when uh, the King James was written, there was something like 5,000 manuscripts. Archaeology being what it is, you now have something like 50,000 manuscripts to compare with. Most of it was translated equivalent to a classic or what they call Attic Greek. And uh, nobody spoke that. For a long time, they thought it was a special Holy Ghost Greek. And they thought the apostles spoke a special Holy Ghost Greek until a man by the name of Dysman dug up all of the words that were supposed to be particular to the New Testament and proved that they were the common everyday usage of the Greek-speaking people. So that your Bible uses words that many Greek scholars in classic Greek could never find. But a man by the name of Dysman, Dysman many years ago, Adolf Dysman, found in all of these writings uh, these words, so it proves the apostles spoke a very common language of the people of that day. All right? And all I do, it's just like, um, oh, I, I could give an example. It's just like uh, taking the word Brother Tinney used where it says they saw a, Peter said he saw a spirit. The word is not pneuma there as we normally see spirit. Spirit is fine. It says it. But the word is phantasma, which is fantasy. A spirit, a ghost, a fantasy, a myth, whatever you want to say it, spirit works just fine. The only thing is, by being able to read the word phantasma, I'm able to go back and understand what the man was thinking when he said spirit. That he was seeing some sort of you know, scary looking object or whatever, you know what I mean, some kind of ghost. And that's, that's very fine. Brother Tinney come out and said he'd evidently seen that word says ghost. Fine, the word is phantasma, which is a fantasy. Peter saw what he saw, fantasy. So that's the reason that I use it. The Apocrypha, I read it, but I do not, I do not use it only to mention such cases as I did there, Alexander the Great. And uh, that is just simply as a matter of history. And you have to prove history on the merits of its own fulfillment. All right? Other questions? Hurriedly. We've got to hurry. I won't have time for but one question apiece, please. Yes, sir. Describe what? Okay. Uh, well, I'll come into that more if you'll let. Uh, if you'll be here, I'll go into that Federation of Nations finally and eventually, and I won't have to do that. It becomes more clearly as I go along. Okay. Fine. Thank you. And I. All right. Someone else. This by handling them this way, we we get what's pertinent. You see. Go right ahead. The, uh, the word a battle is campaign, which is not one, but is a series. 
okay? And you are given the name Gog and Magog. And I will describe what that means when I get into beast and battles, Gog and Magog. I just touched on it today because it was involved in the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel, and I was covering the 11th chapter. But uh, when I go into the beast and battles, I will get into Gog and Magog. Uh, uh, such thing as your Bible says that Magog was the second son of Japheth who migrated to the uh, area and on around the Caspian Sea and so forth. It describes history. Jacinius, whose Hebrew lexicon has never been succeeded, describes exactly what area they migrated to, what kind of people they were called there. And in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament 200 years before Christ, by the way, it was the Bible that Paul quoted from more than he did the Hebrew. He quoted from from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation. 200 years. Peter quoted more from the Aramaic and the Hebrew, but Paul used more of the Septuagint. But the word instead of Gog and Magog is wash. In, in the Septuagint. All right. I don't, I don't use that except just uh, in that particular light show you some of the uh, peculiarities of it. All right? We'll, we'll be on that more as I go along. Gog and Magog. Praise the Lord. Say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. I know, brethren, that some of you may, may feel different, and that's, I've said it before, I, finally, I love you, and uh, uh, there's a difference People try to uh, try ask you a question or say something to show they're smarter than you are. Well, that's easy to do for you to show you're smarter than I am. That's not hard. But your spirit always comes out with how you say it, you know. Generally, if I go to ask or talk with somebody, I say, now this is the way I generally see it. Or I think this happens. I don't, I don't say, I, I don't like the way you're doing it or whatever, you know, that's, that's personal, and we should not be personal. And everybody has been kind to me, and I know that you, I'm not looking for kindness, but I just believe the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is within us all, amen, and we may be different on, on just when everything's going to happen, how it's going to happen, but we got the Holy Ghost anyhow. I, oh, I see. I wish I did. I wish I did. Brother uh, Gwen, all I have is my notes, and they don't mean much to anybody but me. You know how that goes. But I have, I have notebooks after notebook. I have for uh, doctrine, I had a, over a, uh, what was it, a, something like a 50,000-word type thing for it. But uh, I have been, somebody asked me about a book, keep pressing, trying to get it together. I want to get it together. One thing, I've never felt like I knew enough yet to write a book. The reason I have it, because when you write something down, somebody says something. I said, "I wish I'd have put that in there. I wish I'd known that." You just never know enough to ever feel like that you could write the book. But uh, what I'm involved in right now is uh, translating for a literal, more literal translation for my own use, and a Greek commentary upon the Greek of the New Testament. And that is so time-consuming. I've not gotten time to work on the other. I, I wished I had that. I understand the plight. Uh, I know that I'm moving real fast, and I know that in the dark it's hard for you to write. I wished, but you can buy the tape. But <laughs> you can buy the tape. Who's ahead of that now? <laughs> right. But uh, my words don't mean too much. I, I give them to you humbly. I give them to you as just one among you. Praise God. But I do love the Word of God. And that's the way we approach the Word of God. It is, it is at the foot of the throne. 
And we all bow before that. Amen? Every one of us bow before that. Another question, real quickly, is anyone else? All right? Thank you. All right. Whoever's in charge, we'll turn it back to them.